All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to gather together like this as your children. And we thank you so much for adopting us by grace through faith. We thank you for your mercy toward us as sinners. We thank you for justifying us through faith in your precious Son and raising him from the grave as proof of our eternal life through him. Father, we also ask that you bless all those in our congregation, especially those suffering, and you know what they're going through, and we ask that you comfort them and heal, heal them if it is your will, of course, and bring them back to the fold so we can be with one another face to face and worship you together. But we know we all worship you in spirit. We're together in spirit, Father, through your Son. We ask that you bless this lesson right now. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help us be humble and listen to your conviction and your teaching. We ask all these things in the name of our precious Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. Okay, the Lord is our confidence, part eight. We continue on. And I just want to quickly say about Sunday's lesson, um, if you weren't here, please make sure you listen. It was packed with a lot of goodness that a review like this cannot totally capture. Um, I'm going to do my best, but it's not even going to be close to all the, all the information and um, nuances, you might say, and the context of Sunday's lesson. So you might even consider listening again. It was just rich, and we'll uh, at least cover the main points, but that's my encouragement. So, as the Spirit suggested to all of us, I went home and read Proverbs chapters 1 through 3 together in context. And there are just a couple parts that jumped out at me that I'd like to share with you as we go forward, which um, are related, obviously, to what we've been learning in the last week or so. So turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 2, verse 1. Proverbs 2, 1. There's so much wisdom in those first three chapters, and that's why you really do need to read it together in a grouping because it really just uh, snowballs for your edification. Proverbs 2, 1. My son... If you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. I just, for me, was struck by that phraseology and that result, that if you seek him with an honest heart, what will you then discern? What will you then figure out? The fear of the Lord. If you remember last week, I admitted to you that I fully, personally didn't grasp what the fear of the Lord means. I think it's, you know, deeper than a surface level thing there. It's something that we probably grow into more and more. But look what this says. It says, if we seek him 
then we discern the fear of the Lord. In other words, you don't have or understand the fear of the Lord until you seek him from the heart. And this is an ongoing process also. You might have some fear of the Lord now, but not close to where God would like you to be. So keep that in mind. Uh, what will you figure out? What's your reward? You will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God, knowing him. So notice again, it's the way a person seeks the Lord, not just that we seek him. Isn't verses 1 through 4 describing the way you seek the Lord? We're not going to read it again, but it's not just that you do seek the Lord in some type of rote, ritualistic, dutiful kind of way. It's the attitude of the heart, once again, that God is looking for. The intentions of the heart must be to truly learn who he is. And that's the person that gets rewarded, that gets um, let in on the treasures of who God is. So we persist, we go on. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 11. Proverbs 3, 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Here for me what stood out is that a good, loving father of any type, as we've been discussing different types, a good, loving father disciplines his children. And if we, as children, know it's from love, which is what this verse tells us, if we know it's from love, why do we get so defensive when it's our turn to receive the discipline? This came up a couple of weeks ago also. If, if we are God's children, and the Word of God clearly states right here, verse 12, whom the Lord loves, he reproves, and he delights in the Son. He corrects his Son because he delights in him. If that is true, why do we get defensive when it's our turn to be disciplined or corrected or rebuked? Or, here's the key question to begin this lesson. Do we think we know it all? Do we think we know it all? Academically, you're saying no, but in the way we act, are we saying yes? In other words... If you don't think you need to be corrected, you must think you've got it figured out. If you're not willing to receive correction or discipline, you must think that you've got life figured out. Of course, that never fully happens in this life. So a child is only going to grow if he receives this type of instruction from his good father. Another question is, don't you want to see where you're off in your thinking or actions? Every one of us is off in some areas of our lives, and we need to be shown a better way. I was thinking about how um, Priscilla and Aquila showed the pastor Apollos a better way. Apollos was this wonderful preacher, preaching the gospel. I think it's in the book of Acts, and they pulled him aside because he didn't understand the baptism in Jesus' name, and they showed him a better way. What if Apollos was arrogant? And said, I'm the preacher here. What are you, you know, correcting me? 
You know what I mean? They went to him, of course, in a humble way, which is the proper way to do it. And he benefited because he was humble. He received correction. And that just is what came to mind. But hopefully, you in your heart want to know where you're off. Because we're all off at least a little bit in several areas of our lives. And that's where a pastor comes in and a father figure comes in and someone who has a gift to discern certain things, to study the Word of God to exhaustion, for example, which I know our pastor does. That gift allows him to father his children, if you will. And to not think we're off, we're we're really going to miss out on the growth that God has for us, often through our shepherd. Another question to think about, don't you want someone who loves you to wake you up and help you be a better man or woman of God? Hopefully you do want that, but then again, why are we getting defensive when we get corrected? Our pastor has been graciously granted to us to help us in that way, among others. And the Bible is clear that all believers are assigned to a pastor as their spiritual shepherd and father, if you will. So it got me thinking on Sunday as this came up, do we not call this our church family? And does not the Bible call us brothers and sisters in Christ? And if so, what household, what family of brothers and sisters exists what, what household of little children, as we know that we are properly called in the Bible, what household like that does not have a father over it? And apparently, God the Father saw fit to assign an earthly father to watch and oversee. Just like Jesus Christ illustrated in his life on earth, and the under-shepherds now take you know, that responsibility under him, the great shepherd. But what family is there that is going to be healthy and safe and uh, spared a lot of pain if there's no father? How is that going to be maintained? How is that that good relationships in the family going to be maintained? And how will we be protected from the wolves outside if a father is not looking over his children? So... The analogy goes on, and hopefully uh, the Spirit is leading you to be more and more humble about this. The Lord provides such authority, as we know, for our benefit and guidance. So here's something else that might help if you might be struggling somehow with this. What we've learned the last few lessons is that the shepherd should be viewed as a father. We saw many scriptures where Paul, John, you know, they looked at themselves and spoke, spoke to their, chil- their children, their believers under them as children, right? They looked at themselves as fathers. So the shepherd should be viewed as a father. We're talking about perspective. What's your perspective? What's your view of your pastor? And the Spirit's saying, let your perspective be one that it's okay that he's supposed to act in a fatherly way toward you. Once again, our pride is really the only thing that gets in the way of that. But the Spirit is saying and the Word is saying, it's okay, it's actually good. This is God's design 
So we should view our pastor as a father figure. The sheep, if you will, should put on or fully accept the role of the child. A childlike respect for their pastor as a spiritual father. So in other words, take that role upon yourself. Assume that role, accept that role. Uh, say it like, this is my role in the, within the church. This is my position, my proper place. And uh, know it's part of God's plan for you. I think of the commands in the Bible where it says, put on Christ or put on the new self. And maybe that analogy will help you see the way to respond to this, the perspective to put on. And the pastor should put on a fatherly role, according to the word of God. In other words, he should take that upon himself properly and act in that role. And as we go through life with its twists and turns, we must remember the good father, when disciplining you, does it because he delights in you. How quickly we forget. Even when God the Father disciplines us, we start yelling at God or something, right? Or we get depressed and think he doesn't love us anymore or something. Yet, yeah, in his infinite wisdom, he knows we need to be disciplined, put down at times, because we have a lot of garbage he's working out of our soul. We don't know it. It doesn't make sense at the time, and it's painful often. But Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, right? Are you still there in verse uh, 12? The good father disciplines his children because he delights in his son. He delights in his children. So if you believe that, it will ease the discipline. If we take on the appropriate biblical childlike respect for our spiritual father as well, life will be a lot smoother and even more wonderful. Because like any good father, there are good intentions in mind for the child. The child who accepts and embraces his father's discipline is very wise and even gets blessed because of it. Regardless of which father figure, you know, we're talking about, right now we're talking really about the pastor and shepherd. So the child within the church, so to speak, is going to be blessed if he receives the discipline. And these are heart issues. As came out on Sunday, the Spirit has been knitting confidence and fatherhood together. The Spirit has been knitting confidence and fatherhood together, encouraging us to see the common ground between the two. So we were asked on uh, Sunday on the board to synthesize these truths. It was the Spirit of the Lord, it is the Spirit of the Lord, who gives spiritual gifts. He has never once made a mistake in his eternal existence. Governance over the body of Christ is defined by him. In other words, he's the one that set it up this way. Right? Pastor, shepherd, church, sheep. Governance over the body of Christ is defined by him. And it's our job to obey. Perfectly is our intent. It's our job to obey. 
So whatever your role is, you're called to live in and live out that role to obey. Obey that position. Take on, put on that role of a child, if you will. Accept that you're a dumb sheep. Let's go back to that if we need to. And that you have a lot more to learn. We all have so much more to learn. God knows what he's doing. And he put you where he needed to put you. And he gave gifts accordingly and appropriately. And we're called to honor and respect the one the Lord has assigned over our spiritual well-being. Especially when he has a father's heart. So on Sunday, this also came out on the board regarding the weight of shepherdhood. The weight of shepherdhood. With great power comes great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. Don't forget that. The shepherd-sheep relationship is very unique and personal, not just corporate. No one has the right to defile, diminish, or intrude upon it. That's why, as I'm not sure if Pastor said this on Sunday, but he said this in some conversations we've had over the recent time. How does a shepherd take care of a church with a thousand people in it? How does a shepherd shepherd his sheep individually, take care of them? It's pretty much impossible. So I guess we should thank God for another fact that we do have a small congregation. And then our pastor, you know, cares to look over each and every one of us. So, the point on the board is something to really think about. You might ask yourself, where do I stand in view of this principle? Where do I stand? What's my attitude towards this principle? That's between each of us and the Lord. Our great shepherd's heart referred to his sheep as little children, as we've been learning. As we learn from our Lord's parable, if one sheep out of a hundred is lost, the true shepherd can't rest until he brings it back into the fold. That's the result of the heart of a true shepherd. And this is a picture of what true love looks like. That's what came out on Sunday. What an illustration, if you think about it. But it's not only an illustration, it's a reality. That's how God looks at us. That's how God looks at you. Even if there were 10,000 sheep and 9,999 were okay and you were stuck somewhere. That's how God looks at you. That's the reality of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the true shepherd knows that and follows in the Lord's footsteps with that attitude. As in the parable of the lost sheep, true love from a shepherd is selfless. This is a main point that came out on Sunday. It's parental in nature. No matter how lost or rebellious a child can become, a good parent never stops loving him, desiring the best for him. There's probably no greater selfless love than being a parent. So now think of God the Father as our prime example. How unselfish is it to give up your uniquely born son, to sacrifice him for those who are rebels? That is 
the example of selfless love. And as Jesus the Great Shepherd said in John 14, 9, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I was talking to someone today who was having trouble, I guess, picturing God the Father, you know, as our Father, because we can't see him. But we can see, quote unquote, Jesus Christ. We know he was a man. We know what he did. We see him and his actions through the scriptures. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When's the last time you looked at Jesus Christ like your Father? I think it's totally appropriate for more than one reason. But when you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So if you need help picturing the Father's care for you, look at Jesus Christ. The epitome of selfless love. And the Lord's true under-shepherds are given this type of fatherly heart as well. They're given that by Christ as part of their gift. And we are blessed, I hope, none of us take pastor for granted. The Spirit on Sunday took the next step with us by analogy. A good father or parent is a wonderful analog to a good Christian. On the board, regarding Christian love, this was a major theme, and we'll see a little expansion of this tonight, but regarding Christian love, the hallmark of Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others. It's the motivation. As also, we were challenged on Sunday, uh, some of us might say, I do. I do live for others. Maybe we should say, I think I live for others, in a little more humility. We must look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do we really live for others? Because that means selflessness. And if that's not the characteristic of our love, then maybe we're not really living for others. We, maybe we're trying, quote-unquote, we might have a good heart, but our motivation might be off, as came out on Sunday. True Christian love includes actions and truth, not just imagining that we live for others or talking a good game. We learned this from, on the board, First John 318 in the Amplified. Little children, believers, dear ones, let us not love merely in theory, with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion, but in action and in truth, in practice and in sincerity, because practical acts of love are more than words. I love that translation especially the part about giving lip service to compassion. If we're honest, we do that a little too often. Don't say you're compassionate. Rather, close your mouth and be compassionate. Just be compassionate. Stop acting that way. Stop talking about it. And that's following the life of Christ. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're, gonna, if you're willing, go forward in it. 
So this is where we talked about loving godly, loving in a godly, Christ-like way is truly a challenge. It doesn't look like, like the human love we're used to. You know, it's hard for us to get out of um, our human love, our history, so to speak, what we've grown up with as love, and it's hard for us to put that aside. We combine it, so to speak, you know, instead of it being pure uh, in Christ's motivation. The main difference is that Christ's love is selfless. It willingly puts self aside and acts instead in the good interest of another. It's kind of like one or the other. Like think of, think of it that way. If we talk about selflessness, that means you have to put self aside. It's, there's, not a, there's not a merging of that. If there's a merging of that, there's, there's an impurity to it. There's not really a sacrificial love, the love of Christ. So we built up to one of the main points on Sunday on the board regarding Christian love. And this really kind of brings it out. This kind of makes you think about, huh, like how do I love? What is my motivation? Um, am I involving self, including self some, somewhere in there? So again, on the board regarding Christian love, living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. This is something to really just like ponder and pray about and see what it means to you. Like ask the Spirit to help you see what the point is here. All right, because we can look at the words, but you have to personally kind of desire, intend to learn. You have to desire to know what the Spirit's getting at here to see and to come out with the, the love of Christ in you. The love of Christ is a large calling because it truly puts self on the shelf. It truly puts self on the shelf, meaning it puts it aside. Okay, if that little rhyme helps you remember it, great. It literally takes it off. We talked about putting on Christ, right? Putting on the proper role or the right way of thinking. Well, how about taking off self and put it on the shelf? Choosing to forget about self when you decide to answer a call to be compassionate towards someone, for example. So let's again read the point on the board and then further descriptors that the Lord led me to put on the board for our viewing from Sunday. So first of all, again on the board, Christian love. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. We'll get to our verses again. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13, 9, 19 through 23, and Matthew 5, 38 through 48. But first of all, this description came out on Sunday of the discipline and the integrity and the humility we need to apply to ourselves to be able to look at things from their perspective. So on the board, I put this up for you because I just thought it was really helpful to me personally too. Uh, regarding discipline, this means that you must train yourself to practice thinking of others first. 
It is unnatural to think of others first. It means that there's a practice, a, pr a prayerful practice, we might say, to help us think and learn how to think of others first. Integrity. This means that you evaluate every circumstance honestly and with biblical standards in view only. That's tough. Like that's a real um, narrow way to go. It's the narrow way to walk, you might say. If you're going to operate with integrity, it means you evaluate every circumstance honestly, for example, without partiality, and with biblical standards in view only, not personal standards, not your opinion, not your history. What does the Bible say? And I'm going to operate in that. And then humility. This means that whatever conviction befalls you, in other words, whatever the Spirit puts on your heart as right, even if it's against you, you abide by it, submitting to the Spirit's guidance. I mean, if you've been at this for any amount of time, you know when the Spirit puts something on your heart and convicts you. You just know. It's hard to even describe. And so you obey, even if it's against you, quote-unquote, or not in your plans. So that's how to do the best for others while considering their perspective. This is all what came out from the Spirit on Sunday. It's really not about us. Even our own lives are not meant to be about us, but about God and others, right? We know that. That's Christ's love that we are to emulate because that's exactly how he lived. It's just how he lived, totally. <laughs> His life was not about himself. He had a calling to fulfill, and of course he did, but his daily walk was all about others. He not only helped others, but he considered their perspective and where they were coming from. Truly selfless. So once again, on the board, living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. Turn again to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is something that I hope everybody listening, you know, takes time at home alone to consider because we're all, you know, we can be very myopic. We can be very self-centered in the way we view things. And we almost refuse to view things how others view things because we don't want to maybe be uncomfortable, let's say. Honestly, we don't want to put self aside. So let's look at Paul as our example, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Uh, in context, it was talking about eating food sacrificed to idols. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? 
For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Hope you see the selfless attitude there, huh? I'll never eat meat again if that's what it takes. I don't care about myself and what I like if it means my brother's health. On the board, this came out on Sunday also. Paul's attitude from a position of strength, wisdom, and discernment was that it was best for him not to do something that he had every right to do. We would be smart to learn from that example. He loved others with the very love Christ showed him. I was thinking about this. You know, why was Paul so good at this in human terms? Why was Paul so able to put himself aside like this and love so selflessly? He realized the love of Christ personally and how much Christ forgave him. Here's something else that came out on Sunday is that living for others always considers the estate of others. Living for others always considers the estate of others. To love others means to meet others where they're at without consideration of self. Of course, we don't compromise truth, but we do willingly sacrifice our own comforts and rights if it means someone else's benefit. That's Christ's love. If we really had to like summarize it, So again, this is why good parenting is a good analogy to Christian loving. Uh, good parenting involves true sacrifice, not just superficial, you know, niceties, saying the right thing. Good parenting involves good, true sacrifice, selflessness. And so, when we as believers claim to care about others, can we say our sacrificial love for them has the right motivation behind it? This came up on Sunday as another test for us to consider our motivation. When we as believers claim to care about others, can we say our sacrificial love for them has the right motivation behind it? When we look at why we show love to others, is self in it at all? Is gain for self in some way our motivation for loving others? This is like deep stuff. This is like cutting to the core in our souls. Because God, our Father, doesn't want us fooling ourselves. He's like, stop fooling yourself. You, you, you might think you're living for others, but look at your motivation. He doesn't want us fooling ourselves, being deceived that we're living in Christ's love, when maybe we're not. Remember, the word of God cuts to the bone in Hebrews 4.12. Leaves nothing uncovered, and it's going to hurt at times. So, in other words, the Spirit is asking, is it still about you when you love others? Is it still about what you can gain? 
selfish love that we all have been trained up in, in in the world? Do we make sacrifices for others that aren't pure? I mean, what's a sacrifice, right? What's an acceptable sacrifice? Is it not one that's pure? You remember the animals in the Old Testament had to be without blemish? Like no spot. So we make different sacrifices, right? Our bodies. We live for God with our bodies. And how do we live for God or who do we live for? God and others. So do we make sacrifices on a daily basis that aren't pure? Do we look for some type of personal gain when reaching out to help another? I had to laugh at myself on this because, you know, Sunday made me examine myself. And, you know, there's this thing that happens where you might say, I'll go help them and I'll get something out of it too. There's this thing that happens because the flesh is active. The flesh is active. It's poking at you all the time, as we know. At times I've thought of someone in need that I should reach out to. And then my flesh is like, yeah, if you go that way, you can pick up something at such and such, and such store where you've always wanted to go. Ha, <laughs> see a couple smiles, right? Who hasn't done that? If it's convenient for me, I'll go help them, basically. So what started maybe as a pure love of Christ, the thought to help somebody that's truly in need, became a selfish motive. And that's just how horrible we are in the flesh. Or maybe the flesh says, yeah, I'll go help so-and-so because so-and-so is going to be there too and they owe me money. <laughs> or they owe me something. So I'm going to get something out of this since I'm going to go sacrifice. Great job, right? There's Christ's love. Imagine if Christ said, I'm going to go heal that person because so-and-so is cooking an awesome meal for me. So I guess I'll go. That's not his heart. Ours is all mangled and messed up. But what an example, what a, what a um, you know, analysis we were asked to make on Sunday in this way. Do you have selfish love or selfless love? Our flesh is notorious, as we know. The Spirit is saying, don't let it spoil the love of Christ within you. You have him in you. You have the seed, so to speak. And that's where, you know, maybe confession comes in and self-examination before we do something compassionate. What's my motive here, Lord? And if it's wrong, God lets us confess it, repent, and then go forward with the right attitude. So instead of getting condemned and saying, I'm not going to do it now, that's not what he wants either. He's like, just examine yourself. Come to me. Examine yourself. Do it the right way. So on the board regarding Christian love, Christ's love is willing to sacrifice personal comfort and gain with no real consideration of self. That's Christ's love. There's no real consideration of self in the transaction, let's say. Um, so in other words, this doesn't mean that if you do stop at the store after you go help somebody that you've just screwed it up it's not the act of stopping at the store it's the motivation right why am I doing this thing 
Christ's love is willing to sacrifice personal comfort and gain with no real consideration of self. If there is a consideration of self, confess it, repent. Go to God and say, ugh, sorry, fix this, help me, and I'm just going to forget about that. I'm going to go truly help them because this is what I think you want me to do. So this is the perspective on the board that the Spirit is trying to set us free by. He's trying to set us free. Because there's no joy like truly acting in selfless love. There's no re real honest-to-goodness true joy and freedom than when we serve others without any selfish motives. Blessed are those that give. Because of Paul's love for Christ or Christ's love for him, we might say, because we love because he first loved us. Because of Paul's love for Christ, he was willing to truly sacrifice and put self aside when he loved others. And you can tell that by these two passages we're reading. Because he's putting himself in uncomfortable situations. He's putting himself in situations that he doesn't deserve to be in. I use that word deserve just to get the point across. He's putting himself in situations that are uncomfortable, that are truly sacrificial, out of his element even, for the hope of saving some. And what a picture of Christ's love we see. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 9.19. We already saw 1 Corinthians 8 as one example. 1 Corinthians 9.19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Doesn't get much more humbling than that. Again, on the board, living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them from your own perspective. It means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. Again, let's think of a good parent and how they live for their child, how they put their own life aside for their child. And let's think of a good shepherd, how he lays down his life for his sheep. What's the common characteristic? Selflessness. Not even caring about one's own life. If I die, I die. If it ever got in that situation, a good parent would be willing to die to save their child. Same with a good shepherd. Selflessness, the hallmark of Christ-like love. And if you believe we've been granted a shepherd with this type of love, 
this type of heart for Christ and therefore for us, then the message on Sunday was follow his lead. Follow his lead. Like stop dilly-dallying and stop questioning. Follow his example is what we're told in the Bible. If you think someone has a heart after Christ, then run. Run after them. Run with them. Imitate their faith, as it says here on the board. Hebrews 13, 7 in the Amplified Classic. Remember your leaders and superiors in authority, for it was they who brought to you the word of God. Observe attentively and consider their manner of living, the outcome of their well-spent lives, and imitate their faith, their conviction that God exists and is the creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ and their, their leaning on the entire human personality of God in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. Imitate that type of faith, that type of conviction that you see in your shepherd. As Pastor was trying to say on Sunday, if I can do it, you can do it. If I can struggle the way I have to struggle in this position and, and with the attacks I face, you can do it. You can persevere. Follow my example of staying firm in the faith, of persevering, and even loving through it all. By grace through faith, we can persevere too. We're already victors through Christ, remember. So let's see what our Lord said about persevering in his love. Go to Matthew 5, 38. Matthew 5:38 Follow your good shepherd's example. Whether that be Jesus Christ himself or the under shepherd that you're convinced is where you are to be or who you are to be under. <clears throat> and remember as we read this, this invo involves putting aside self on the shelf so to speak to live in this kind of love. The only way you can do it. Matthew 5:38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, unbelievers, do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, that's your intent, as came out earlier in the lesson. As we struggle at times to live and love like this, 
we sometimes forget God's provision for us to help us along. One of those provisions is on the board. One of God's grace provisions. We are given shepherds to help us persevere when we're feeling weak. That came out on Sunday. We're given shepherds. Why are we given shepherds? Like, why didn't God just say, follow Jesus Christ and read your Bible on your own exclusively? Why have we been given shepherds? Apparently, we must have a big need and big, you know, problems if we were floundering out there on our own. We're given shepherds to help us persevere when we're feeling weak. So I ask you, is there anything wrong with leaning on your pastor at times? Or is it maybe how God designed it and maybe your role, you should assume the role of a child in the faith, knowing that he, your shepherd, has been given a spiritual gift to help navigate things, even on a personal level. Shepherding is very personal. As I think uh, Monica brought up in the leadership meeting, like a shepherd, a, a real sheep, inspects the sheep personally. Every night, looks through, you know, the wool, takes out the ticks, you know. There's a personal caring and tending to each individual sheep. That's what it looks like. So why do we kick against that? When in fact, it could be a wonderful benefit for us if we're humble enough to receive that leadership. Humbly admitting that we do need shepherding. After all, God provided one for us. How about humbly admitting that we don't have the discernment and the perspective that we think we have? Don't we always think we're right? Rest my case. So many times, how many times have you thought you were right and then someone had to show you you were wrong, even embarrass you to show you you were wrong? All right? Then you go away with a, your tail between your legs. Instead of being humble to begin with and being willing to be corrected. That's something else the Spirit's been getting at this whole lesson, even from the beginning. Humbly admitting we don't have the discernment and perspective we like to think we have. Again, we're called cheap after all. So much of this comes back to, as we begin to close, it comes back to true humility versus standing in the arrogance of thinking we have it all figured out. No, we're dumb. The sooner you admit that you're dumb, the better chance you have at making it, so to speak, of bringing God the most glory with your life, of taking advantage of, in a good way, the blessing that your shepherd's supposed to be for you, for example. We are dumb, every single one of us at least in some areas of our lives. I was going to say something else, but the Spirit's holding me back. So that's why there's such an immense value to humility and childlike faith. As we've learned, humility is the key to the spiritual life, right? We go nowhere. We go nowhere. We might as well just start running in the mud, spinning our wheels in the spiritual walk. So to admit we need the help and encouragement and discipline from a good shepherd 
is a very healthy, wise thing. Don't be deceived. So again, the Spirit is asking each of us, are you in your heart receiving God's provisions or resisting God's provisions? What's going on in your heart? You don't have to say it out loud, thank God, right? But between you and God, what's going on in your heart about God's provisions, particularly the provision of a shepherd? One that loves Christ. On the board, one of God's grace provisions. We are given shepherds to help us persevere when we're feeling weak. We are to imitate our pastor's faith and be encouraged by one another's faith. In other words, and I guess we'll close here, there's nothing wrong with that. Like our flesh wants us to think there's something wrong with that, that we're admitting our weakness by submitting to a proper authority. But the flesh is like, you know, trying to spin you around. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's part of God's wonderful plan for our lives. And yet we don't take advantage of God's grace provisions like this. We don't appreciate God's grace provisions. We almost, you know, turn our back to it sometimes because of arrogance. So that's where the Spirit wants us to end this evening. A lot to think about. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace and your mercy and your patience with us. Help us have the right perspective, Father, of fatherhood and, and your good fathers that you provided in our lives. Help us not be tainted or twisted by bad experiences. Help us to see the good shepherds in our lives and the good fathers in our lives and to thank you for them by humbling ourselves before them. We thank you for the guidances, different types of guidance you give us, your word, your spirit. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. <laughs> now that was a golf class.